So today in part six, I want to talk to you about works upon works. Works is a Bible word that means deeds. So if it says good works, it is good deeds. If it says bad works, it is bad deeds. Um, works are things that you do. It's a Bible word. Now, I'm going to use the word works all through the sermon because it's in the Bible. But every time you hear the word works, I need you to think something I'm doing, whether good or bad, is something that I do. Now, salvation has nothing to do with works. It is 100% grace. So my question and what I want us to wrestle with today is, if, if, if grace gets us to heaven, then why does it matter how we live? How about we just get saved and then just live however we want to do, whatever we want to do. Be mean to people, cuss people out, be, you know, steal, um, lie. Why does it matter if you're saved by grace to do good deeds in life? That's what we're going to reconcile today. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by free grace. Is it free or does you have to pay for it? Okay, you are saved through faith. It was nothing you did. Was it something you did or nothing you did? Okay, just making sure. But a gift from God. Was it a gift? Okay, um, not of works. Was it of works? Just making sure y'all are paying attention, okay? Lest anyone should boast and say, oh, I got to heaven because I did da, 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 da. No, you got to heaven if you're in heaven because of Jesus 100%, nothing you did at all. It goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. So here's the prepositions I want you to see. By grace, for works. Two prepositions. By, for. By grace, but there's a reason he saved you. He did not just save you to get you to heaven. He also saved you so you would then do Good works, so you would be obedient, so you would honor him. But again, why does it matter? I mean, I realize, yes, he saved us to do good deeds, but if, if that has nothing to do with heaven, then why don't I just be saved and just be selfish? Do whatever I want to do, even though I'm saved by grace for a reason, I don't have to do the reason and I can still get to heaven, so what's the big deal? Okay, that's what we're talking about today. For your notes, I have two points. Normally there's three, but I have two points. Um... Our belief determines where we spend eternity. Our behavior determines how we spend eternity. Don't think you're going to get the same house in heaven that Billy Graham got. Don't think you're going to get to live in the same location that Mother Teresa got to live in, okay? Uh, you are saved by grace for works. But here's the reason we do good. Here's the reason we do the good works. Because your belief determines heaven or hell, but your behavior determines what heaven is like or what hell is like. If you're an unbeliever, you might have a different um, punishment in hell for your sin than Hitler. You'll still be in hell if you're an unbeliever, but it'll be a different hell, it'll be a different location in hell than Hitler. And if you're in heaven, same thing. In, in heaven, we're judged by our works. I realize we get to heaven by grace, but then we're judged by how we lived on earth, and that determines our rewards, okay? So that's what we're talking about. Two points for today. Number one is this. You're not good. Isn't that encouraging? I, I just wanted, I bet that's really encouraging for somebody in church that you don't like right now. You can just look at them and tell them, John Paul said, you're not good. You're not good. Um, you are not good. Not a single one of you are good. Not a single person I can show you biblically, not a single one of you are good. You're definitely not good enough to get into heaven. In fact, in fact, God's standard for getting into heaven isn't even good. His standard is perfect. 
That's the standard. Now, the good news is Jesus is perfect, and we can invite him into our life and get to heaven, but you are not good enough. Not a single one of you. Psalms 118.1, give thanks to the Lord. Here's why. He's good. Now, if this is the word that defines God, how in the world could you ever tell yourself that you're good or that your little old sweet grandma's good or that Billy Graham was good or that mother? Not a single one of them were good. Um, in our English dialect, we, have, we use the word love in so many different ways. I love my wife and I love hot dogs, right? I don't love them the same. I love hot dogs a lot more. I'm just kidding. It's a different word. I'm joking. So good, <laughs> when you say someone is good, you have to understand you're not being judged by Webster's Dictionary. You're not even being judged by um, if you compare yourself to everyone on Facebook. Well, I guess I'm pretty good compared to them. You're not judged on a curve, okay? You're judged by the Word of God. And the Word of God says that the word good is a way to define God, who he is and what he does. You'll never be good like that. You are not good enough to get to heaven. Only God is good enough to live in heaven. Are you with me? So in your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bible, Mark chapter 10. There's a lot of underlining you're going to do. And I'm going to read you the story of the rich young ruler. And I'm going to interject some things in the story. And you can underline and write in your Bible in Mark 10. Uh, the whole goal for me reading this story is to get to the very last line of the story. That's the whole goal. Although I am going to interject some things along the way. Okay, the whole goal is the last line. In Mark 10, uh, verses 17, we're going to go all the way from 17 to, I think, 27. Verse 17, it says this. As Jesus went on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. So obviously this guy's either humble or pretending to be humble. Good teacher. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? Now, I want you to notice the emphasis is on good. Everybody say good. 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 That's the emphasis. And he recognizes, Jesus, you're good. So obviously, if you're good and you're in heaven and you're going to go to heaven, I need to do or be like you to get there. If you're good, I need to be good. What good thing can I do? And here's the famous line Jesus says to him, um, no one is good except God alone. Okay, there's scripture. So no one's good. Um, Billy Graham, he's not good. Mother Teresa, she's not good. Your little old grandma, not good. Here's the thing. Um, you don't even know what's going on in their mind. You don't, if you've ever had a greedy thought in your whole life, now you're officially not good. Because if God is good, that also in the Bible would mean perfect. You're not good. So then Jesus plays with him. He says this. You know the commandments. Now, I want you to look in your Bible or on the screen, and I want us to count how many commandments Jesus says to him. He says this. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, and honor your father and mother. How many commandments are those? Six. Okay, good, y'all. None of y'all graduated from Soxty High School. That's great. So six of them. So do you think Jesus was having a bad day? And, you know, it's been, it's been 4,000 years since Jesus read, the, you know, the tablets, and he forgot the other four, and he's like, oh, I can't remember them, so I'll just name six. You think that's what happened? Okay, so the commandments, there's 10 of them, 10 main ones, and they're sectioned into two parts. Six of them have to do with our relationship with people. Four of them, the other four have to do with our relationship with God. Jesus only named the six because he knows the guy's heart, and he's, he's, he's building up to something, and he realizes, yeah, you might have done a good job treating people the right way. That's good, but that's not all the commandments, buddy. And so the guy gets really excited, and he says, Teacher, I've done all of these since I was a boy. He's, he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to get to go to heaven. I'm going to get to go to heaven. I said, what good things should I do? You name six commandments. I've done those. I get to go to heaven. And it says, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And we often miss that phrase in this story um, because um, do not tell me that you love someone, but yet you have not spoken the truth to them. 
That is the biggest deceitful lie. I cannot stand. I had a friend of mine tell me the other week he loved this person. I said, you don't love them. He said, what do you mean? I know. I said, you don't. You've never once loved that person. Why? I said, because you're not leading them to Jesus. You're leading them away from Jesus. You're sleeping with them outside of marriage, dude. That person's going to go to hell, and you don't even care. Because the Bible's likened salvation to marriage all through the Bible. And you can't think, ah, marriage is no big deal. We're going to do this and live like we're married. That's like telling somebody, you can pretend like you're saved, but you're not saved. I said, you don't, if you love someone and you know they're going to hell, you love someone and you know they're not living a life that shows that they're saved, if you love them, you're going to go to them and say, hey, listen, I love you. I care about you so much. If you were to die today, I don't know if you'd go to heaven or not. Do you know if you're saved? Can I tell you how easy it is to give your life to Jesus? Can I sit down and explain it to you? I love you. I don't want you to die and go to hell. Don't tell me you love your child, your grandchild, your parents, your siblings. You're full of crap. If you don't, if you don't care if they go to heaven or hell, if it's, if it's, not, it's not a burden on you to think, man, I might not ever see this person ever again if they die, you do not love them. You're deceiving yourself. That was too harsh. I apologize, and I won't do that in the second service. Okay, note to self, be nice and smile. Got it. Okay, so loved him and said, there's one thing you like. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he doesn't say this will get you in heaven, by the way. He doesn't say that. He says, you'll have rewards or treasures in heaven by doing the good works. If you're saved and you get to heaven, you'll also have treasure there because you're doing the right thing. Okay, watch this. Then take up your cross, follow me. The man's face fell. He went away sad, for he was very rich. Here's what Jesus was really saying to him is this. Um, I, I, I know you've obeyed the six, but there's a bunch of them that talk about don't have idols, don't put anything before God, and your heart doesn't really belong to God or else you'd follow Jesus. Here's what he's saying. If you don't have the heart to follow Jesus, you're not saved. Now, here's the cool thing. You can't change your heart. You cannot change your heart. You can't make yourself fall in love with Jesus. You can't do the right thing on your own. No, 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 no. But you can repent and change your mind and say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do anything without you. I can't get to heaven without you. I need you to change me. And then he changes your heart. And then you have the desire to do what he's asking you to do, take up your cross and follow Jesus. And, you know, I never like preaching spiritual phrases that people don't understand. The phrase, take up your cross, it means, it's a Bible phrase, but it means whatever your ailment, whatever your pain, whatever your suffering, whatever your discouragement, your addiction, whatever it is, he's saying this, just go follow Jesus anyway. You, you, you might, that might not change in your life right away, but just follow Jesus anyway. If you don't have the heart to follow Jesus, if you don't have the desire to follow Jesus, you're not saved. But here, here's the good thing. It's easy. He'll change your heart. You just have to change your mind and he'll change your heart. So <clears throat> I want to explain this part of the story, then I'll go into the rest of it. Um, and I've used this before, but it's the best analogy I've ever come up with on this. There's a, there's a musical called Fiddler on the Roof. And it's an old musical, and it's about this husband and wife. And they're, 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 they, when, they, when they got married, they got married because it was a prearranged marriage. They didn't fall in love and I want to marry you. Their parents said, you have to marry this person. To the, to the boy, they said, you know, she'll be a good wife. She'll bear you children, marry her. To her, she probably thought, he'll, he'll provide and protect, marry him. So they get married, arranged. They, they grow old together. They have a bunch of girls, a bunch of daughters. And one day when the daughters are older, they come home and they say, Daddy, Mommy, we've met the boys we want to marry. We've fallen in love. And the husband and wife, they say, fallen in love? What does that have to do with anything? We're going to tell you who you're going to marry. 
They said, but mom, dad, we love them. Uh, then one of the daughters was like, I love him. I love him. We, have, we just want to be together forever. They said, what has love got to do with this? It's a musical. What's love got to do? Got to do. That's not the right musical. But anyway, and so what's love got to do with it? You got, we're going to take away. And they run out of the house. And the wife's doing the dishes and the husband's on the table. Like I said, it's a musical. And the husband all of a sudden sings this line. He says, do you love me? And she stops. She says, well, yes, I love you. He's like, no, but do you love me? And she's thinking, well, of course I, I love you. He's like, but do you love me? And she starts listing off all the good deeds the works that she's done. I bore you children. I make your lunch every day. I wash your dirty boots. We've slept in the same bed for 25 years. And he said, that's great. But do you love me? I know you do all these good deeds and you've served me and blah, 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 blah. But do you love me? Do I have your heart? Do you want to be with me? Is it that you want to do the right thing or is it that you want to be with me? And I hear Jesus saying to all of you who do good deeds in life, do you love me? Well, Jesus, I go to church, and I worship, and I tithe, and I do, and I read my Bible. But do you love me? Is there a relationship? Do you want to be with me? Or were you just raised to be a good person? Is it something you just focus on the commandments? I got to do right and not do wrong. But do you love me? And in the end, of course, they discovered they actually did love each other, you know, even though it was pre, even though they were trained or taught, this is the direction you go, and they did love each other. But I think Jesus asking all that, do you love him? Great, you came to church today, but do you love Jesus? In verse 22, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says this, how difficult it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished. We'll get back to that in a second. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. And they said to him, and here's the famous line I want to get to, who can be saved? If, if, if a rich person can give away all their stuff and they're still not saved, how could anyone be saved? And Jesus said this, with man it's impossible. But here's how you're saved. With God, all things are possible. Amen. Here's what he's saying. You can't save yourself. I don't care how much you give away, you can't save yourself. Now, a few things. The first thing is the eye of the needle. For those of you that have read a poem that it's some kind of a gate or some book somebody wrote, it's all lies, okay? You can Google it. Google is a lie. There is no gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. It's a fictitious story written in the 2nd century about Peter and his staff trying to get a camel through a gate. Whatever, it's not in the Bible. The eye of the needle is actually an eye of a sewing needle, okay? The Bible translates itself. You don't need other books or other people to translate it. It translates itself. It is the eye of a sewing needle, okay? Here's how I know. Some people think it's a gate in Jerusalem that dogs go through. And a camel can't fit through unless it's a real baby camel that's just born and you can pull it through and it'll make it through. Here's how I know it is no gate and it is a, it's the eye of a needle. Here's why. Because Jesus just said it's impossible. If you could get a camel through it, it'd be a possibility. You can't. My Lord just said it is impossible. It's impossible. So it's the eye of a needle. Here's the second thing I want you to see is this. The, 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 the disciples were astonished. Why were they astonished when Jesus said, no matter how much you give and all the money, you turn, all this, you're not going to heaven because of that? How, why were they astonished? Here's why. Because they were rich. Contrary to popular belief, the disciples had a lot of money. I'll prove it to you. Matthew was a tax collector. Okay, we know those guys got some. He was a politician, let's say. We know they got some money, right? Um, Simon the Zealot was a lobbyist. 
you know, he had money. Okay, when James and John, when they left um, to follow Jesus, they left their, listen, boats, plural. Poor people don't have boats. Okay, well, some of y'all are poor because you bought a boat, but most poor people don't have boats, okay? They left their boats, their nets, and listen, they left their hired servants. Poor people don't have employees. <laughs> Again, and maybe, anyway, you get what I'm saying. They left their money to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, that's not going to get you into heaven. That's not going to get you into heaven. And here's the last thing, the astonished part. So the word astonished in your Bible in the Greek there means like shocked or amazed. But that second, greatly astonished, that greatly astonished does not mean, um, you know, more amazed than before. It's a, it's a Greek compound word. It actually means to be shocked because somebody punched you in the face. So imagine somebody that you're just walking around and someone just knocks you in the face. That kind of shock. They thought, Jesus, what are you talking about? We thought if we gave everything away, we'd go to heaven. What are you talking about? Jesus said, listen, no matter what you do with man, it's impossible. You need a Savior. Here's the good news. God's your Savior. That's how you're going to get into heaven. That, was the, that, that blew their mind. That blew their mind. So you're not good enough to go to heaven. You can't save yourself. First Chronicles 16, 34, the Lord is good. You are not equal to the Lord. You are not good enough to get to heaven. Now, real quick, before I go on to point number two, I think it's so funny, on the day of creation, at the end of each day, God said something about himself out loud, and he said something about what he did. Okay, I think it's very, I want you to see this. In Genesis 1-4, at the end of the first day, God saw the light, and he affirmed, it's good. In verse 10, second day, and God said it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good and he affirmed it. At the end of day 4, verse 18, God affirmed it was good. Verse 21, God said that it was good. And listen, if you can create the sun, then you're good. So you tell me, do you have, are you that good to create the sun? See, the only person good enough for heaven is God. It's only one God. If you're good enough to create all of the ecosystem, the animals, the mountains, and the trees, then you know what? You are good enough to be with God for all of eternity if you're that good. Now, it's so funny. At the end of day, at the middle of day six, middle of day six, after he creates Adam by himself, Genesis 2.18, he said this, it's not good. This ain't good at all. This, ain't, this is not. I personally think that Adam was running around the garden naked with scissors in his hands. And God was like, Adam, Adam, what are you doing? Whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, man. You need a woman. You need a woman. That's what you need. In Genesis 1.31, God created them male and female, and that was very good. Very good. And by the way, how many genders do we read here? Just curious. Okay, just making sure. I didn't know if y'all could, I didn't know if y'all knew math or not. I just thought, just, I don't know. First Peter 1.19, you were purchased with a lamb unblemished and spotless, the priceless blood of Christ. Has your life been spotless? then you need to invite Jesus into your heart. And that's the only way you're getting to heaven, okay? Point number two is this. You should do good. You're not good, but guess what? You can do good. You're not good enough to go to heaven, but guess what? When he saved you, he saved you so that you should do good. So, again, why should we do good? Okay. Heaven or hell is not decided after you die. In fact, this might blow your mind, God does not decide who goes to heaven or hell. He doesn't decide if you go to heaven or hell. Listen, you decide that. He doesn't decide. He doesn't force you to love him. He doesn't force you to invite him into you. He doesn't force you to do that. You get to decide. And here's the thing. You only get to decide that one life, and that's on earth. 
After you die, you do not get to decide heaven or hell. You are already at either the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment of works for believers, or the, um, the great white throne, which is the judgment of works for unbelievers outside of hell. But you do not get to decide, you, you do not get to decide what heaven or hell is like. Jesus does not decide what heaven or hell is like for you. You decide that on earth. Yet the judgment of faith that takes place. Now, let me say this. Um, I think, and, and some of you, this might hurt you, so it's okay. Uh, don't write me an email. Actually, you can. My email is uh, pastorjohn at firstmethodistchurch.com. Um, <laughs> you, you might not realize, I think the greatest gift that God could ever allow is for someone to die of cancer. I think the greatest gift that God could ever allow, not give, but allow, is for everyone in this room to die of cancer. I think that is the greatest gift. Or die of some disease where you know you're dying. I think that's the greatest gift ever. Because I believe like the thief on the cross, there's going to be so many people that you thought were in hell, but they died of cancer or some disease. And then somehow in their last breaths, they had the thought, I can't get to heaven without Jesus. That God did everything he could to reach them. And finally they get a death sentence. And it gets closer and closer. And God's trying to grab at their heart. And I believe you'll see so many people like the thief on the cross. Now, thief on the cross, he got no rewards in heaven. Okay, His life was so bad, bad works, that he's hanging on a cross. That's how bad works he did. All he said was, remember me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he's in heaven, but he doesn't get a lot of rewards. But he's in heaven. I think you'll see a lot of people that died of cancer like that. And you, In fact, I have a, in fact one of my closest um, relatives that ever passed away of some uh, years ago, um, loved him, just a great, great guy all around. And for 15 years, I tried to win this guy to Jesus. I mean, I would write him emails and letters and, oh, God's got a plan for your life and let me just pray with you. I sent him a Bible. I did everything I could. He would not give his life to Christ. He's told he's dying of cancer. Still wouldn't give his life to Christ. He's told he has three months left to live. Nothing. A month left to live. Nothing. He ends up at the hospital, and they say, you're not leaving. You'll be dead within seven days. Nothing. About four days before he dies, he finally turned the TV off, and in mumbled words, he said, read me the Bible. And so, family, we just took turns reading him the Gospel of John and, you know, the Matthew, Mark. We started with John. I think we read it three or four times. And then finally, about two days before he died, he said this, I need Jesus. About 12 to 24 hours later, he went into like a coma where... He was breathing, and then he, then he passed away. Listen, my friend, he's in heaven. And it took cancer to get him there. And you know what? Even if you are saved, how amazing would it be of a gift to know you're going to die, and you get to do all your, you know, last goodbyes, and Jesus, I want to say all these. Guess what? Let me tell you something. You're dying. Every one of you in this room. Might not have cancer, but as you're sitting in this room, you are dying right now. Why not live your life for Jesus as if it was just seven days from now? I mean, it's going to be sometime, sometime in the near future compared to eternity. It's going to be like that, just like that. So uh, the reason we do good deeds is because we're going to be judged by our works. And I'm going to show you a, a, a scripture that shows that there's a lot of them. I'm going to show you one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If anyone builds on Jesus Christ, in other words, they're saved. Jesus Christ is their foundation. And there's six things listed with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. And just so you see this. Three of those things, when they're caught on fire, they're moldable and bendable. The other three burn up just like that. I want you to see. The work of each one will become openly known when the judgment day of Christ exposes it. On that day, fire will reveal everyone's work. The fire will test the character and real quality of the work each 
person, every one of you are going to be here if you're saved, has done. If any man's work survives this test, he'll get his reward. Now, whatever you get on day one in heaven is what you get forever. You don't get to build up on it. You build it on earth. Whatever you get the day you enter heaven for your works on earth, that's the reward you get for the next billion centuries times a billion. Okay? And here's the picture of salvation versus works. Watch this. If, if it's burn up, he'll lose everything. All reward, yet he himself will be saved. Isn't that a beautiful picture of salvation? Like, you know what? You were a lazy old stinking goat when you were on earth, but you were saved. So you get to get into heaven. You just don't get a reward there. It's basically saying this. You wasted your whole life. You knew better. You were saved. God spoke to you, and you didn't do anything about it. You're going to get to heaven by the grace of God, except you're going to get no rewards. So unbelievers, they're punished according to their works. But believers are rewarded according. Man, that's, that's good news. See, believers, we're not punished for our works, our bad works, because Jesus took our punishment. But he lets us have the reward for our good. That's a good God. That is a really good. You think he'd even it out. You know what? You lied, but then you told the truth. Okay, that one's even. Okay, you gave $5, but you stole $5. That one's even. No, no, no. All the bad stuff, we're not punished. Jesus took our punishment. All the good stuff, he gives us his rewards. Because we couldn't even do it without him. That's a good God. Okay, before I close, I want to show you a picture of, of um, a, a way that people um, in hell are being judged. Okay, this is an unbeliever's judgment. And it's just the most amazing, I mean, you talk about pulling some theology out of this, it's amazing. Matthew eleven twenty, amazing. In fact, I'm going to show you, I actually did a little whiteboard because I wanted you to really, 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 really get this. Bam, bam, bam. Okay, okay, so here we go. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty. Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, that's right north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, woe to you, Bethsaida, that's north um, east of, of Sea of Galilee. I assure you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable or less suffering for Tyre and Sidon than for you. People of Capernaum, do you think you'll be honored in heaven? You're going to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. All these people are going to hell, pretty much, okay? That's all, they're all going to hell. That's the first thing. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of like a circle. And um, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida are where Jesus did most of his mighty works. Um, theologians call this the evangelical triangle. Because it's where they had miracle after miracle, blessing after blessing after blessing. Um, let, me, let me modernize it. Um, you and I, we live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. In fact, if you compare us to the rest of the entire world, you are more blessed than 90% of the entire world. God's done more for you than 90% of the entire world. You, 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 you've had great, you have great opportunities for great relationships. Uh, great churches. There's a church on every street where you live. You have opportunities to read your Bible every day on your cell phone. You could hear the gospel preached at any moment you want to hear it preached. So you're with me. So you could be in this group here where Jesus did most of his mighty works. Okay, stay with me. He's saying to them, y'all had an opportunity to repent more than everybody else. 
You had the, you were so blessed, yet you never repented and said you need Jesus. You never came to Jesus. So your hell, as unbelievers, your hell is going to be worse than Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now let me remind you what Sodom was. Okay, Sodom was um, rapes, um, sexual morality, homosexuality, murders. Horrible, horrible place. Horrible place. Tyre and Sidon, they are um, they were port cities north of Israel. Uh, the main um, way they made money, they were sea merchants. Okay, um, they were it was, they were Phoenician cities. Phoenicians are um, witchcraft, uh, demons, all, all that stuff. Horrible things. Four of Tyre and Sidon's worst sins are recorded in three books of the Bible. Um, I think it's in, yep, Ezekiel, Amos, and Joel. I'm about to read for you just one scripture, just one, one scripture about their sin. And you know about Sodom. Okay, you know Sodom. I'm going to read you one scripture about Tyre and Sidon. Just one, that's it. Now, I chose a translation of the Bible that is not um, amplified. I chose one that is the most, um, it is the most um, easiest to read because I know there's children in the room, okay? But I need you adults to realize I put the easiest, uh, I could have put a real translation of you really understanding it, but I know that you'll understand it when you read it. Okay, this is, the, this is just one, one of their worst four sins, okay? Joel 3.3, 3, they've cost, cast lots for my children, my people, and they gave a boy for a harlot. And they sold their girl just to drink some wine. They were into child trafficking. So bad that they would just have children only for the purpose. So every day they could trade them and not have to work. I want wine, take my child. I want some money, take my child. I want this harlot prostitute, just take my child. And they would have children, and every day that's, the, that, that's what they would do with their children. Every single day. And listen to this, listen real close. And Jesus said, Jesus said this. The hell for these three places, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, will be a worse hell than for child traffickers and rapes and murders and homosexuality. This hell's worse. How could Jesus say, your hell is going to be worse? It will be more tolerable for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. It'll be less suffering. They're still going to hell because they're unbelievers. It'll be less suffering for them. For them, for the child traffickers, will have less suffering than you three. Here's why. Here's why. They were so blessed, and they did nothing about it. They refused to say, God, I need you in my life. After everything he did for them. Here's what he's basically saying is the sin of not repenting when you have a chance every single day to come to Jesus is a worse sin than anything else you could ever imagine. If the mighty works, this is an amazing theological, go back to the scripture for. If the mighty works that had been done in this group had been done in them, they would have repented. They would have, if, if, if they had been blessed like you, with a church on every corner, with miracle after miracle, with health and doctors and medicine and, and, and money in the bank and a refrigerator and air conditioning and a car and all the things you could do for Jesus and all the ways you could serve him if you would just come to the Lord and you didn't come to the Lord? You did nothing with your life? Hell's going to be so bad for you, you can't even imagine. Romans 2.5, watch this, put it up there. You refuse to repent. You have a hard and stubborn heart. And watch this. This is so sad. You're actually treasuring something up in hell. 
You are storing things up in hell for yourself. You're treasuring up wrath on the day of wrath when the judgment day of God will be revealed. That's crazy. That blows my mind. Believers, this is you and I, I hope, we will not be punished for our bad works. And here's the good news. We will be rewarded for our good works. Amen. Now, I didn't want to close with that because that's not a good way to leave you. So I like to tell you a story that represents salvation at the end of each sermon in this series. It's a true story. This wealthy man and his son, um, when the son was born, the, the mother passed away. There was some problems during the birth. They were a very, very wealthy family. And the father loved to collect famous pieces of art from all over the world. Picassos, Raphaels, everything. And the son became an avid art lover as he got older as well. So they'd collect everything they could over the years. In fact, it was told that they would often just sit together in the living room by the fire and just look at all the pieces of art they'd collected over the years. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went off to war. He was very, very courageous and he died in battle while rescuing another soldier. Uh, the father was notified. He grieved very, very deeply, of course. A month later, just before Christmas, there was a knock on the door. The old man, the father, he opened the door, and there was a soldier standing there. The soldier said, I'm the one who your son saved whenever he was shot and killed. And Your son always told me how much you loved artwork. He said, I'm not a painter, but I thought I'd make this for you. And he painted a picture of the son in his, in his army outfit, um, for the father to have as a gift for Christmas. The father loved it. He took off the million-dollar you know, Picasso from the mantle, and he put that picture of his son up. A few more years went by, and the father died of old age. There was a great auction to be made for all of his paintings. and Many influential people from all over the world flew in just to have an opportunity to purchase, even just one, for their collection. The auction started. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. He said, we're going to start with the picture of the sun. Who will take the painting of the sun? There was silence in the room. Nobody. He said, come on, will anybody give any amount for the sun? No one said anything. Finally, the room started getting restless. They said, get on with the real bids. We want the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. But the auctioneer continued, the sun, the sun. Who will take the sun? Finally, this voice at the very back of the room, he raised his hand. He was the longtime gardener of the father and son. He told how they always treated him like family. He said, I don't have any money, but I'd like the painting of the son. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice. He said, it's yours as a gift. The room started to yell even louder. Now get on with the rest of the collection. We're ready to bid. The auctioneer laid his gavel down on the desk. He said, I'm sorry, the auction's over. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be given away. Whoever desired that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all the paintings. He said, the man who took the sun it's everything. <laughs> so that's the good news today. The good news is we are saved by grace for good works. Amen. Okay, let's go to the Lord.